like, who were you in your 20s? And like, <laughs> how have you evolved since then? And what kind of flexibility did that require mentally? You know, a lot of us try to force life plans, but I feel like you've allowed yourself to do things that you maybe never would have thought you could or would do. And I want to hear about all that and what you've learned about money, where you've messed up, all those different things too. Awesome. Why Professor X? Okay. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's good to be on the show with both of you. You both are <laughs> amazing storytellers. So it's, as a Midwesterner, I'm naturally disinclined to talk about myself, but I will, I will do my best. Is that a Midwestern thing? Don't you think so? I think it's like a, an innately Midwestern, you know. Um, maybe, maybe we're so Midwestern that we don't even think about it. Well, it's it's, not even yeah, I was going to say, because everyone tells us yeah. we're nice, but whenever people say, like, oh, Midwesterners are nice, I'm like, why? Like, you know, I don't get it. I'm like, because I think people get crabby in the winter. Yeah, no, I, I think it's more. I think it's more that like humility that that I think defines Midwesterners. I think we're kind of nice to people's faces, but not always nice behind people. Like we're, it's like kind of like uh, we're kind of like from the south, but maybe a little less. I don't know, nasty behind our behind people's backs. But I, mean, I, I think of like a defining characteristic of Midwesterners as being humble. Yeah, but the, I yeah. like that. It's yeah. so true. I feel like that's in all of our DNA. It's, it's hard to self-promote. And so that's why we try to do things like have conversations and just have some cameras running so we can be ourselves and get to know you better on a deeper level, Matt. Like, it's cool. We've gotten to get a lot closer over the last, what, two or three months? Yeah. And, like, I don't know. We knew of each other back in the Rock Ventures days, but I don't think I ever actually met you. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I know that he exists and it looks like he's doing cool things, but we were just disconnected. And so I'm excited to keep getting to know you better and keep calling you a friend. No, likewise, <laughs> likewise. I, and this is, this is cool. I was, when Brianna, I mean, I think we all on some level, even, even the, the most like sheepish Midwesterner, we secretly love to talk about ourselves and tell our stories. So um, I'm thrilled to be here and I'm excited to talk. I, I feel I do I do feel like enough of my life has elapsed where I feel comfortable talking about the mistakes. Um, and I think that's just kind of part of, you know, some sometimes mistakes are so uh, painful at the time that they're hard to kind of separate the moment from your emotion yeah and then only with time as they, you start to heal and you look back and you're like oh my god thank god that was the best thing that ever happened to me but at the time you were like, it was like yeah yeah gut, gut wrenching yeah those so. moments can be can be rough and yeah. i like i appreciate that you're now 40 and you're like okay i can understand <laughs> that i've lived long enough and i can teach some other people so that maybe they don't have to go through all of the same mistakes that i made it can save them some pain along their journey i hope so yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely what do you think like made you want to like say you know what it's time for me to go into the spotlight a little bit more and start teaching people some of the things that i that i messed up on along my way um I remember I was um, uh, probably about six or seven years ago, I was on a road trip with a friend of mine, and uh, he was working directly for um, Governor Rick Snyder at the time. And he was talking about how Rick had kind of, at, at some point in his life, Rick had like broken up his life and said, I want to work in business, and then I want to work in you know uh, politics, and then I want to teach. And that he had kind of 
carved up his life into those three thirds. And when, when my friend Brian told me this, my, the thing that I heard was, well, I want to teach right now. I don't want to wait until I'm 65 to teach. I want to teach right now. Right. And so, um, you know, the next day I wrote an email to, um, uh, an intern, we had an intern from Wayne state and his name was Patrick Bresnahan and Patrick was kind of a rock star. You know, well, I'll, I'll use the word rock star. Some people might, I love you, Patrick. Some people might say brown noser, you know, but he was, he was that, he was that student that just knew everyone, you know? And so I knew that Patrick would be able to connect me with some faculty and I grabbed lunch, uh, reached out to the finance department chair and I said, Hey, I want to teach in my spare time. Next thing you know, he said, he was, he was like, yeah, absolutely. Tell me when, you know, let's, let's get you in a class. And, uh, I'll never forget how terrified I was the first time because anyone that pays college tuition, you have no idea how easy it is to teach a class in college. It's like the, the bar is like frighteningly low. Really? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. It's like frighteningly low. Um, uh, really hard to teach high school, you know, but, but really easy to teach, you know, uh, in college. Um, And, uh, I really just kind of, um, uh, a lot of times people talk about the theater of retail or the, the theater of, um, uh, storytelling. Right. But I think there's a certain theater to teaching. Um, and, uh, I really enjoyed just standing up in front of people and having that captive audience. Um, it was really, it was really fun. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and you learn quickly, uh, how important it is to kind of get people's attention. And usually uh, one of the ways that you you catch people's attention or build um, trust with them very quickly is through being vulnerable. So, Yeah, vulnerability. When we, when we are courageous enough to open up ourselves and show people, hey, here's the mistakes I made. Hey, I'm human. I, make, I made mistakes too. But look at me now. Like, it's okay. Uh, it does create a deep level of trust. And like, that's incredible. You got to do that. So what, what did you start off teaching when you went to Wayne state? You know, it was a pretty, um, it, for any business major out there, it was uh, introductory finance, business finance. It was net present value and internal rate of return. And, um, you know, how to use the business calculator. It was some, it was a, it was not, it was not, a, it's, it's the most humdrum class in the world. But, um, so it, it, but it has it had a very special place in my heart because um, when I was a junior in college, I remember at at uh, the University of Wisconsin it was you know big lecture hall right and uh, uh, this um, this woman she she'd sit next to me and she'd like fall asleep on me and her name was Lisa and she was a marketing major and um, you know then she'd wake up and she'd say I have no idea you know what. I was like, ah, oh, you know, so, so I ended up tutoring her and, and I was, and I was very much, maybe this is, you know, you look back in time and you can kind of see the, the dots connecting. Right. But I would, I would spend time preparing myself to tutor Lisa and we ended up dating for a while. But but I remember, but I remember, you know, for the, the class had changed, like the class hadn't changed one iota in the 20 years since I took it. Wow. But, um, but I remember I would prepare myself to teach Lisa the material because she was a marketing major and it was just not the way her brain was wired. So I'd have to teach myself to teach her. And so 
one of the things I quickly realized is when you teach yourself to teach somebody, I mean, the exams in that class for me, it was like nothing, you know, because I... Because you had to learn how to, to teach it. I had to learn how to teach it. Way, yeah. I had to learn how to teach it, you know, and so I learned that there's the power in teaching, you know, you really, you, you have to, ha- you'll, you yourself will have the material down cold. Um, and so maybe that was where the, where the, where the, where the plants started to, where the seeds were sown. It's, yeah, it sounds like it. And it's cool that you were, you like, you realized that she needed to learn it in a different way and you got comfortable being creative enough to try different ways to teach her so that way she could comprehend. So it's cool that sounds like you've carried that into being a professor at Wayne State now as well is you start off, did you say you were starting off teaching a 20 year old course? Yeah. 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 It was a 20 year old. I mean, well, the course has been, the course is old as dirt. I mean, not as old as dirt, but you know, that, that, that business finance class is the curriculum has not changed much. And, you know, gosh, I don't even know, you know, for 50, 60 years, there was, um, seminal book in the 1940s, I think it was called Graham Dodd value investing. That was kind of the, the beginning, but, but yeah, I mean, your, your, your challenge is always, your, your challenge is always, you know, really trying to grab the attention of your audience. You, you know, that you guys do this in storytelling with, with video, right? You've really got to, you've got to give people analogies that they can connect with and, uh, or metaphors. Um, because if you, if you're not, if you're not, for me is a 40 year old white guy. And, um, you know, that's, and, and I'm, I have to, I have to connect with people. Otherwise they're just, they're not going to listen to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Brianna, it sounds like you had something. Well, yeah, I agree. But I was also thinking about how like your passion for education and I'm wondering, like you heard about, you know, governor Rick Snyder and you were like, well, I want to start teaching now, but did you know that in your twenties that you would want to one day be a professor or was it something that you always kind of flirted with the idea of? No, I had a pretty, I had a pretty, um, I always thought people that when I was in my twenties, I, I, there was a, there's an expression, which is those that do do and those that can't teach. Um, and, uh, I always, I had that lodged in my head. And so I always thought that professors were kind of like the, the flunkies of the business world. And, uh, who knows, maybe that's, maybe I'm proof that that's still true. Uh, but, um, I, I guess I never really thought about it. I always had kind of like a swashbuckling you know like you got to kind of grab the bull by the horns and you you know if you can't do it then you kind of slide off into something a little more um less intense uh but the irony of that statement is that um when it comes to like the the working inside of a university I've never been in an environment that is more ruthless not not from the sense of like um, like the, the business, like I'm going to crush you at all costs, but the, 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 the lack of civil, because when people, people have tenure and they, they're not going to get fired and they can literally speak their minds without any repercussions working at a university's one of the most difficult settings I've ever been in, in my life professionally mm-hmm. period. So yeah, cause everyone has an opinion and some people think they're getting paid to teach their opinions. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's almost like, um, like they feel very, they feel very bought in. It's kind of hard to explain. It's almost like, uh, cause the, the, the faculty, I mean, they, they can't go anywhere. You know, they're, I don't mean that in a negative way, but they're, if you have tenure, 
you know, it's not a very portable job. Like you can go make videos anywhere. Right. Yeah. But you can only teach, you know, psychology of, you know, indigenous South American populations and, you know, so many places. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so they they feel very, they feel very like bought into the success of the, 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 the organization and they don't leave. You know, like when I was at rock, I was, you know, the, the 40 year old in the land of 28 year olds. And at Wayne state, I'm the 40 year old in the land of 65 year olds, you know, like it's just no one ever leaves. And, and if they don't like something, I'll just tell you, they'll just tell you to your face. You yeah. know, like I remember my hair was probably like four inches shorter. It was probably like, I don't know. I can't maybe more like his hair, but he's <laughs> off, he's off camera. But, but I mean like the first week I started working there, somebody was like, your hair's too long. You're never going to last, you know, like this isn't the business world. You don't get how it's like here. You know, I was like, <laughs> that's wild. Oh, constantly bombarded by like, aggressive and passive aggressive behavior so anyway but well uh, yeah and that that still kind of brings me back to why teach then (laughs) why teach um i think um you know teaching teachings um you uh um it, it sounds cliche but you 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 watch you know most of the class, I mean, they, they kind of come and go and, and, uh, they don't always, they don't always give you the impression that you did anything right. Even though sometimes things that people have taught me have like echoed in my noggin for years. Right. And you, you kind of take it for granted, but it's, it's kind of like, um, I hate to use this analogy, but I will, cause I can't think of a better one. It's kind of like, and I don't even like this sport, but it's kind of like golf. Like you, 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 you play golf and you play golf for 18 rounds, you play golf for three hours and there's like three swings you took all day that like make you want to come back, you know, and, and teaching is kind of the same way as, you know, you, you, you put in all this time and effort to make this class and you try to make it fun and interesting. And then like, there'll be like a handful of people and they'll come up to you, you know, they'll be like, you know, you, you taught me, changed my life. And I, you know, like you, you, I'll never look at x y or z the same way and and um or you get an email you know two years later that's like oh thanks to you and i'm i own a home now or something like that you know and and it's not it's not thanks to me but it it's that it's that feeling of really genuinely deeply helping change the way someone sees the world which is just it's like you can't beat it there's nothing there's nothing out there that beats it yeah i agree that's pretty cool did you have any professors like that when you were in college that you still can't get them out of your head. <laughs> oh, hundred percent. I had a life changing professor, um, you know, Carol Fisher and, uh, you know, I was 19 and, uh, I, I forgot if I, I thought I told this story for, for you guys, but maybe I haven't. Um, I, um, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. You know, my, um, my, my mom and dad divorced when I was 10 and my dad was not economically, successful guy by any stretch of the imagination like he literally when my parents got divorced my dad delivered newspapers and pizzas because he was getting paid in cash and that way he wouldn't have to count it towards child support so I always like I never looked at my dad and was like oh wow this is you know I got big shoes to fill um so so when I was in I went to community college and I was like I don't know what I'm going to do with my life and um Carol, I remember, um, you know, I, I took my first accounting class with her 
And, you know, she's like, I want to get you a job at a CPA firm, you know. And um, so I went to this little CPA firm in Wisconsin, and I'm doing bank reconciliations and a lot of really uninspiring work. And, 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 and you know, and, and I came to her, and I was like, you know, I really i am so grateful that you did this for me, but I just think this is the most boring work I've ever had, and I want nothing more to do with it. And, and she says, you know, she said, Matt, what is Scott doing? And Scott was the gentleman that owned the firm. And I said, he usually comes in around 10 o'clock, and he talks on the phone for a couple hours, and he leaves. And, and she's like, exactly. You know, that can be you someday. You know, you can be the one growing the firm, using your personality and your, 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 uh, your, your, your strategic mind to help work with the clients and grow the firm. And so that was when it kind of clicked for me. And uh, that, that, that getting a degree in accounting was something I should, I should consider. And then when I was thinking of transferring, uh, you know, at the time, it seems, it seems like such a, it seems like a, such a minor thing, but I, you know, I was, the, the safe course would have gone to the university of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. It was in my backyard. I could stay at home, um, you know, and, or, or transfer to Madison, which was the big flagship kind of big 10 school. And I, I went to professor Fisher and I'm like, Hey, you know, what should I do? She's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I want to go to Madison. You know, I want to go where there's an awesome football and basketball team. I want to go have a college experience. And she's like, go, you know, just go, go, go do the scary thing. Go do the expensive, scary thing. And, uh, and so whenever I'm faced with a decision and one course seems scarier, I always feel like, you know, that I should go down the scarier path. Um, cause it was a little scary going to Madison. I didn't really think, I mean, it was, it had always been built up in my mind as it was kind of, it was Madison is to, Wisconsin, what Ann Arbor U of M is to Michigan, it's it is like the best college in in the state, and so I didn't know if I could compete with those people. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I had no idea. You know, and uh, you know, but that's, I think that's another important role that uh, teachers play for us is that they give us the confidence to go to test our metal. You know, uh, so. It is crazy the amount of uh, like courage it takes to learn, and like it it is scary to go to to go and do that new thing. Mm-hmm. But when like when you did it, when you moved there, when you participated, like what was like what you you grew a ton from that. I would imagine. Are there any is, is there anything that just like pops to mind? You're like, wow, I really learned this through subjecting myself to saying, you know what, this thing scares me. I'm going to go do it. I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to try it. And we were talking about you learning from your life. Do you have any big uh, takeaways that you learned from that? From, from my, from finishing up at Wisconsin? Yeah. Oh boy. Um, You know, I mean, it, it all, college always, I think we have this like, halcyon view of it in our life as I shouldn't say we, but I mean, I think most of us kind of just kind of wash it with this like patina or, or sepia color of like, Oh, this like wonderful idyllic time. And, you know, when I really kind of like peek under the hood a little bit and I, I try to really get back to what was like really happening. I mean, like, I remember like, 
bouncing checks to the landlords and like selling plasma and um, you know and being like hyper competitive with people that 98% of them I never saw again the moment that the ink was dry on the diploma do you know what I mean and and so but but I think my biggest takeaway was you know I'd always kind of thought that you know people like at at Wisconsin there was people from like Chicago or New York or you know there were there were well there were extremely affluent people that sent their kids to Wisconsin Madison and um, you know one of the things I'd always felt like if somebody if you if you were wealthy or you came from like a certain walk of life that you were like inherently better <laughs> I mean I'm, I'm not gonna lie it's, it's true easy to like, think about that. it's yeah. true I yeah. always you know I felt that way and then and then you and then you kind of and if and if you've never really intersected with that with with the people who really have come from like fabulous or from from the upper crust you'll never know like mm-hmm. it you can you can you can safely live your entire life with that belief and never have it dispelled if you never really get to you know and then you you kind of sit next to them in class every day and you you know and you realize that they're just like the rest of us and that it's you know, and you, you can you can you can outwork them, or you can you know outsmart them, or you can whatever. And and then next thing you know, you are one of them, I guess. So you know, it it, it um, and hopefully you don't forget that you weren't, or you know. But um, I think that was my my single biggest takeaway was um, you know that that everybody kind of everybody um, puts their pants on one leg at a time. So. I like that. Everyone puts I their like pants that. on one leg at a time. It's true. Yeah. And I think it's the older that we get, the more that we realize like, oh, okay. Like it doesn't matter what your history is or where you came from or what you've done in the past. What matters is who you are now and how you treat people and how much work you put in and how much you care. Like now it doesn't matter what you did last year. Like that doesn't pay off for who you are now. Yeah. So that's a huge takeaway for life. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And then what about after college? Like, so in when you were in college, you know, you decided to take that big scary leap and sounds like you learned a little bit more about like, you know, how to be competitive, but also how to like give people more grace with the fact that they are like you. What about after college? What did that look like for you? Yeah, I know. It makes me sound like this this amazing hero because I went off I went on a limb and studied accounting and at a Big 10 college and, and <laughs> No, I'm, I'm I'm totally joking. Like I know. Uh, but uh but no, no. I it's But a, it is it is yeah. scary. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. is. I'm yeah. not going to take it like we really undermine the college experiences. While everyone goes to college, honestly, yeah. it, it it is hard. Like we need to stop making it sound so simple. Because when you're when you're 19, it's a huge deal. It is, it is, and 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 we could, you know, and, and I think it's, um, and only about 35 percent of U.S. adults have bachelor's degree or higher. So it, no, most people don't go to college, you know. But uh, but uh, and 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 nowadays it's so expensive. It, I don't even. It's not even worth it these days. Most most of the time, um, you know. I think uh, when I after college I came to Detroit and. Um, you know, there was something about the city that just kind of got under my skin. I didn't really, um, you know, I, when I was, I was becoming an adult in Detroit at a time um, when it was the decade leading up to the city becoming, you know, cool. And um, it was uh, a really interesting place to be young. Um, I remember one of my best friends from college, he, he was a pharmacist and he moved to 
San Francisco and um, I remember visiting him and you know he's like why do you live in Detroit you know isn't your mayor indicted why, why would you ever live there you know and I always was pretty defensive I got I always had like a chip on my shoulder about defending Detroit as everyone that lives here by choice does and um, but I, I remember going out to the Bay Area to visit him and um, you know um, he was um, he was gay and like I just remember I felt like his life was just like drugs, sex, and brunch. And I was just like, man, like this place like is just too perfect. It's like too glistening. Like there's nothing real about this place. This is the Bay Area in like 08, 09, you know, 2010. And, but I, it was, it was hard to articulate that because, you know, he's making six figures in the coolest city on planet earth. And like, I live in Detroit, Michigan. And, but I think what, what, with time, you know, he, the beautiful thing about Detroit was that I always felt like I was part of something bigger than myself. And, and I always felt like the people that I became friends with were just like really interesting down to earth people uh, that were working on awesome stuff, you know? And so I think that's in a lot of ways was what made Detroit such a good place for me. And on top of that, you know, um, uh, reading books like the Ark of Justice and learning about Ocean Suite and, and just learning about the history of Detroit. And because I think for most white people, they, they kind of look at, and I'm not, this isn't like virtue signaling or whatever. Fuck it. Like, this is, I'm just being honest. But like, I think most people kind of look at, look at like the African American history in the US and they say, well, you know, we freed the slaves in 1865 and then. There was riots in 1968, and then Barack Obama was elected, so what's the big deal? And, you know, when you really have a long time to kind of sit in Detroit and learn about it and learn about its history and learn about the really odious, disgusting behavior that's kind of, like, always been there, um, I think it gives you a chance to really understand the breadth and depth of the experience in a way that 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 most people don't i mean for me like growing up in like wisconsin rural wisconsin you know it's like the land of you know hard-working conservative white people in like well-manicured cul-de-sacs and you know and there it's really really hard for people in that space to understand things like systemic racism because they're just not they're just so they're, they're so physically removed from it that it becomes an abstraction. And so um, I think that being in Detroit the last 15 years has really given me the ability to see see that, um, understand that on a level that I don't think a lot of people do. So, yeah. What originally attracted you to move to Detroit? <sighs> and when did you move there? You know, I, um, I moved to the city in 2003 and this is going to sound really like corny, but it was really important for me. And this is in 2003, it was like just the dawning. It was the dawn of, it wasn't the dawn of the internet, but it, it, it really mattered to me that my address said Detroit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't really like, I don't even know why. I mean, and I would feel the same way if I lived in Miami or, or Chicago or Milwaukee. Like I was always, I always liked cities and and so it was important to me to live in the city 
you know, I don't know why. And Detroit was the one for you? Uh, well, the, the Detroit in particular, you know, I moved to Detroit to work for General Motors. And, okay. you know, that's its own. I mean, I, that was, for me, who's a little bit more of a secret, low-key, wild child hippie, and, and uh, to kind of work for a big corporation right off the bat was a little bit of a, you know, a little, a little rough, you know, cause you know, there was like, you, you imagine, like I, 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 I meet, I would meet all these young people working at Quicken or rock and, and they're, they're 23, 24 years old. And I'm like, you have no idea how lucky you are. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. like you have no idea, you know, cause, cause you just go to these large and I'm, I'm, I'm not picking just on G I'm sure most large, most large corporations are like this, but you know, there just, there weren't a lot of people when I looked up, when you're young, it's so important to look up and to see, you know, role models. Yeah. And, and I looked up and I saw a bunch of, you know, <sighs> I saw a lot of really good people who just wanted to get a paycheck and good benefits yeah. and God bless them, you know? And, and so I never, uh, it was, uh, it was a hard, it was kind of hard cause you, you, your, your whole life is about, you know, kind of going and uh, structure and goals. And then all of a sudden you kind of get thrown out into the real world and you have to kind of fend for yourself, which is fine. I mean, I'm not, not complaining, but those, those large, those large corporations, whew, you know, they're, there's not really inspiring places. So. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Being at Quicken is super inspiring and they give you something to live up to and to level up to. So I appreciate that about my personal corporate experience. It's like, hey, that was an amazing place. I understand it's rare, but I, I learned a ton from it. Um, so, yeah, if you started off at a GM or somewhere that's <laughs> not as quite forward thinking, it would be a different experience. Yeah, we talk about how Bill likes bigger companies and I don't. I like small businesses and like I don't think it's one or the other, but Bill has true experience with big company is Quicken and he like he loves Quicken he like he talks about the the rock families like he's still there and like will be for the rest of his life and like he we met and he's like you need to read the isms you need to read it you'd love it and I'm like what the what the heck he like hands me this book from 2013 he's like the values you just you'd love it and I'm like it's okay. Super good. It is. It is. It is. It's. It's even better when people, you know, walk the walk instead of just talking the talk. You know. Yeah. yeah. Or when you use them to like try and dis, you know, disarm like the bombs of bad behavior yeah. in your in yourself and others. You know, because yeah. it's it's uh it's 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 really powerful. Like, yeah. and and that was and honestly, like it was, um, you know, I worked the the. The place I worked before I joined Quicken was this like mercenary consulting firm, which was like relentlessly focused on like cash and 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 kind of saving companies. And um, you know, it was like it was like nothing but you know white male engineer and finance geeks, and that were willing to work a hundred hours a week to you know make money. And when I came to Rock, it was like the I can't, I think I came really close to like the, the, like the, the, the body rejecting the organ. Cause I was, I was just like, this is not at all what I'm used to, but, but, in a, but I, but I saw, I'll never forget my, one of the last clients I worked on before I came over to rock was Dow, Dow chemical in Midland. And I get my first day of isms training and they start there. They, they go on and on about how the CEO at the time it was Bill Emerson and how 
he read the emails of the complaints every day. He read, read the complaint log. And I remember thinking to myself, uh, I think the Dow CEO was a guy named Andrew Liveris, who was an Australian guy. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, Andrew Liveris would never read the customer complaints for Dow Chemical. And I was like, if there's anyone in the organization that should be reading the customer complaints, it's the CEO. It totally, yeah. It was like the light. It was like that light bulb went on, the flipped immediately, and I was like, "Oh, okay. I kind of, okay, I get what I get. I get what they're going. I get what they're they're doing here. I, okay, I see it. I, I'll, I'll give it a chance." So that was, I remember that light bulb moment when I was like, "Okay, there's something. There's something to this." You know. Yeah, and so. I I hate to throw names out there too, but that's like companies like Dow and GM. Like I'm from Bay City. And so GM, there was a huge layoff, I think, in 2011 that impacted a lot of my friend's parents. And so one GM, like I still drive Chevy, but that was painful for a lot of people in my town. And then Dow, they do incredible things for Midland. Um, But I've always thought that Dow could do a better job supporting Saginaw. And so though I know like that Dow does great things for Michigan and for Midland, I don't, I've always thought they could do better. And so <laughs> I, I heard about, you know, how Quicken kind of helps Detroit and it amazes me and it, it makes me excited. And that's why Bill gets excited about big companies because he's like the potential they have to build a community. Like he's like, I've gotten to be a part of it, Brianna. Like you can't knock someone's dream if they want to grow big and grow big and grow big because that can be really good for a town. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. Yeah. Um, what was your role at GM? Oh my gosh, I was a, <laughs> I was a auditor for their company that doesn't even exist anymore. It was called General Motors Acceptance Corporation. They, okay. uh, they did uh, car and home loans. Okay. And I was just kicking the tires to make sure everything was, um, you know, all, all the all the controls and rules were being followed. It was, it was pretty. It was. Um, I mean, it, it's it. The there was a there's a famous movie called Fargo. And uh, the the protagonist, I think, is played by Steve Buscemi. I'm looking at you. I don't know why I'm looking. I, at I don't know. We were just talking about Fargo, Fargo yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, and you watched the the TV show. Yeah, too. I've seen the TV series. Those are good. Yeah, yeah. the original the original movie with Dylan McDermott and Steve Buscemi. He, Steve Buscemi plays a General Motors GMAC auditor. Oh, okay. So and he or no, he's being he's ripping off the car dealership he's working at, and the GMAC auditor is like trying to like catch him. So and then violence ensues so yeah anyway have to add that to the watch list <laughs> yeah yeah you should yeah. you should totally it's uh cohen cohen i think the cohen brothers did it, it sounds familiar yeah. yeah yeah fargo with um dylan mcdermott steve buscemi anyway and so. then you went into uh quicken doing what so i so i did consulting for about eight years before quicken and um oh so and, you went gm and then consulting yeah i was at okay. gm for like a year or two it was oh, a quick, okay quick stopover and um so i was a consultant at PricewaterhouseCoopers for four years uh and uh you know I was um clean shaven you know flying around on the laptop you know um looking at companies financial information um before the crash and then after the crash I worked at a um restructuring and turnaround firm it's kind of like it's kind of like an emergency room doctor but for companies and we would come in and, and try to fix companies or, or keep them alive um, by making, you know, the, the, the hard decisions to, to try and negotiate and fix stuff, clean stuff up, you know, keep them, keep them going or help them go through a bankruptcy. So, uh, and um, 
Uh, I actually worked on GM's bankruptcy for about two years as a consultant uh-huh. when, when they were going through the their big uh, their big trouble in 2010. Um, and during that time, I was um, I was in Detroit, like physically, and I wasn't traveling. And I really kind of fell in love with the city a little bit more. And and um, you know, there was restaurants and bars starting to pop up and um you know it was starting to kind of get some um some positive activity and you know quicken was moving downtown and so i said i kind of want to be a part of it somehow um and um friend of a friend worked at rock and the next thing you know i was working i'll never forget so here's here's a here's a story that Here's, here's a mildly embarrassed. This, this, this story does not cast the best light on me. But so I had two job, I had two job offers. One was with Rock, and one was with the city of Detroit. And I was, I got a job with Mayor Dave Bang as the deputy finance director in the city of Detroit. And, um, and so at the time, this is before the bankruptcy for the city. Okay. And, uh, and so I had talked to my. Um, the woman at my old job who was the scheduler and I said hey you know I'm putting in my two I got the job from from the city but I hadn't gotten the job from rock yet and uh and I said well I'm gonna probably take one of these you know so I'm I said I'm gonna so I put in my two weeks at work right and um so the the rock opportunity was kind of dragging and so I was like oh boy I, I need I need you know, I'm gonna have to start at the city I can't keep putting them off you know so I started at the city, and um, so this was probably 2011, 2012, probably 2012, and um, so I, I worked at the city for a week, and they never, they never gave me a laptop. I'm just sitting there, you know, the, the, we were in a meeting. I don't remember the exact context of the meeting, but I, but I made a comment offhand about the city filing for bankruptcy, and the, the person who was my boss at the time, I won't, I won't say who it was, but you know, she, she pulled me aside after the meeting and she said, we don't use that word. We don't, we don't, we don't use that word around here. And I said, are you like, in, in my head out, out externally, I'm like, Oh, okay. But in my head, I'm like, are you out of your fucking mind? Like, yeah, I don't know if you're noticed, but like, and if, you know, a year, a year and a half later, the city filed for bankruptcy. Uh, but, um, but so I, I was at the city for four or five days and then, you know, I got my job offer from rock and I was like, I'm, I'm out of here. Like, I can't, you know, like, like you got to choose just, what's best for you, you know? as well. And you also got to make a huge impact in the city as well, working with rock. So, I mean, you know, yeah, it was, it was, it was, that was, that was the thing, right. Is, you know, Dan, Dan was just kind of swimming in cash and, and doing all sorts of crazy good stuff. So it was, it was, um, I definitely felt like I had an impact, but, um, but it was, yeah, working at the city for five days before unceremoniously quitting was probably not my finest moment. But anyway, hey, yeah. I say props for having the courage to <laughs> say, you know what, the situation isn't what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I, like they're avoiding problems that they know that they have. Yeah. And you can't avoid those types of problems if the organization isn't willing to do anything. There's only so much that you as a new employee can do, right? Um, and looking so, at your life yeah. right now, it sounds like it wasn't your worst moment. I think it was a good thing, huh? <laughs> no, it was, it was a pretty right. good thing. Yeah. It was all right. Like I, I was, <laughs> I was really, I was, I was just, I, you know, I mean, there, there was so, you know, that was the city became such a better place in the 
intervening years and uh, had better leadership and I'm sure better resources and everything else. But that was kind of, you know, that was kind of, uh, I don't think it, um, that, that point in time, you know, that was like right before the, that was the absolute nadir, I think for the city in a lot of ways. So I don't, I don't, I tell that story just more because I think it's an interesting anecdote than it is reflective of how bad the city was or how bad I was. But you when know. you didn't electively talk about it, I asked too. You know, <laughs> it's not like you were like, I'm going to get on camera and talk about this. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, I did ask. Yeah. Because it's a part of you. Yeah. And you know, it, it was uh, like, it was, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's a lot easier, you know, to kind of, to, to your earlier point about the power of the large companies, I mean, you know, large companies have a lot more resources than cities do. And so, you know, cities, city governments, I should say. And so, yeah, it was a lot easier to look at working at Rock Ventures and say, oh, I'm going to have a, lot, a really positive impact on the city than it was, um, you know. And that's that's kind of a bummer. There, there's, there's, there's like a kernel of sadness in that statement because it means that, you know, a young person that, um, he's growing up in Midland, Michigan might be better served making Midland better working at Dow than working at for the city of Midland. Right. So, um, I don't know. It maybe speaks to the outsize influence that companies have these days. So, yeah. So, yeah. That's a tricky balance because you're all trying to do good and you all want good to be done in your community. So it's like, you have to figure out a way to work together to achieve the common good which can sometimes be hard. Yeah. But I think Rock's done a pretty good job making that happen in Detroit from, from what I see. So yeah, yeah, yeah no, for them. it's, um, and I, and I think one of the cool things I noticed working at Quicken and Rock was it felt like every six, you know, Dan's kind of the beauty and the horror of him is that he's so ruthless with kind of learning and getting the right people around him. It felt like, it felt like I was watching an organization gets smarter, you know, it was like every six months or 12 months, it was like, this is, this place knows more about this urban revitalization operating in a large city than it did a year ago. Yeah. It was like the, the people would change, the culture would change, the vibe would change, the, the projects would change. And so at the beginning when I joined and it was a little more bro-y, you know, and now it's a lot more nuanced and thoughtful and, and uh, place than it was in, you know, 2011, 2012. So. Yeah. Cause it like, was it was still pretty young back in 2011 mm-hmm. like, as, as far as like rock ventures. We were small too. Yeah. There was very small. There was probably about 20, 15, 20 of us on. Yeah. It was, it was a little, little crew. Yeah. Bedrock was Sam Hamburger and Jim Hikitai just buying buildings in a corner with Dan Mullen. It was, it was wild. Yeah. That's crazy yeah. times. Yeah. And see how far we've come and how far Detroit's come is really cool. Yeah. yeah that is special. Uh, let's talk a little bit more too about, you know, Matt in his twenties. Like we've talked about his journey, but who was he? So he was a hippie who <laughs> got a bachelor's degree in accounting. <laughs> in like inside. that doesn't go together. <laughs> Finance inside. and hippies. So who were you? Who are you? What has life been like since since then? Oh gosh, I I mean I, I I'm sure I was like a in my twenties. I mean I was you know trying to get drunk with my friends on the weekends and chase girls, just like I was a, probably a very normal kid, I young adult, I guess. Um, what was I like? Um, 
I'm trying to think of stories that would kind of make me that would really highlight who I was. Um, I was, you know, I was somebody who, if I had, um, extra airline miles, like I went to Buenos Aires for two or three weeks and I would learn how to tango and learn how to, you know, try to figure out how to get around Buenos Aires in 2004 or whatever, or before map for Google maps, or I don't know, I would, get ripped off by a cab driver. I would, I would kind of stick my nose into, you know, weird places and try to do weird things. I think that's, my mom was a very, you know, kind of alternative lifestyle person. And so that's kind of where I think I get my hippie, my hippie vibe. I hide it. I don't really, I don't, yuppie, hippie. I don't know. It's, I feel, I feel smarmy talking about it because I don't feel like I'm, there's like this, the, the the shell that it comes in but then there's the deep in the inside there's something different maybe but I think they all exist it just they? depends on the day okay so the, the the black Volvo outside that can't you know there's no there's no zen in, inside <laughs> um but uh you know I remember when I think of like my my 20s um you know yeah I was um I was I was I was just um hanging out with my friends in Detroit, trying to, you know, we would be excited about development in the city. Like we'd make jokes about buying buildings or we'd get excited when a CVS drugstore decided to open up. And, uh, um, you know, it was, uh, trips here and there. Um, I think, um, I'm trying to think of what I was like. There was something that would have made me different. Um, I, um, the car thing and the city thing were always things that were very so so the story I'll tell um so when I got that so when I got my first hot shit job at General Motors right and so I'm 23 and I get a job and I'm making $60,000 a year and at the time General Motors owned Saab which they don't make cars anymore they 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 became defunct in 2010 they, they they got wound down. It was a Swedish car maker. You can still find them here and there. And so I bought a brand new Saab for $40,000. And it was just a single, like within months, I think I think within months I had an accident that cost me like $5,000. And I was just like, this was just a stupid fucking idea. And um, so one year later, I sold the car to my neighbor for 25 grand. So I took 10, 15K right off the top as a bad, as a, as, as, as a, waste uh and then i bought the nissan off ebay for six thousand bucks or seven grand or something and then i just drove it into the ground but i was so i was so deeply you know like i was so i was so mad at myself for buying that car that i just i I think i was 32 or 33 before i bought another car that was i just drove that nissan into the ground Mm -hmm. um so i was and and i also oh here's Here's the car. Here's the car story to, to end all car stories. You'll you'll appreciate oh, the yeah. story. So I was um, I was I was probably 33 or 34. This is this is a good me story, and uh, I was working for Rock at the time, and I went to some golf um, uh, fundraiser at Oakland Hills, um, and I I made a I was going home. And I made a left-hand turn where I should have made a Michigan left. I just turned left, right? You know, cops pull me over, right? 
and uh, the cop cop pulls me over and he I give him my info right and he comes back and he's like I'm sorry sir but you're driving on a suspended license I'm gonna have to you know and I'm like okay well can I can I get a ride can I get a you know somebody can I have a friend drive my car he's like no 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 I have to impound your car you know so he impounds (laughs) my car right and so I um he said it was because I, I didn't pay a ticket for insurance you know so um the next day I um ride my bike down to 36th District Courthouse in downtown Detroit. And I said, hey, you know, I, I think I got a ticket for not having insurance and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Help me fix this, right? And so the, the, the cashier looks at me and she goes, oops, yeah, we misapplied your, your ticket. And I said, oops, oh, well, that's great. This will be an easy thing to fix, you know? So I, I, uh, we fixed the application of the... But I, but I had been driving on a suspended license because I hadn't applied my $25 insurance payment. And uh, so I call up the 48th District Court in Bloomfield Hills, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, in two weeks when you're arraigned, you can get your car back and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, this is, this is like, this is the world. This is the kind of shit people have to deal with. It's crazy, yeah, jumping you know? through hoops. <laughs> right, you know? And so, so, I, so I, called, I called Mike Brugerman. Yeah. And I said, Mike... Get me back. Yeah, <laughs> Get me my car back. <laughs> this is this is this is Gilbert's head of security, and uh, and so he, like Mike Mike made a phone call and I got my car back. You That's know? Funny. And and I was like, number one, this is bullshit. This is not be how the world works. You know. So so a couple weeks later, I go to 48th District Courthouse, and this is probably again it was probably like 20, 2014, 2015, somewhere along those somewhere in that time frame, and I just watched this parade of people. You know. Old, young, black, white, you know, and they were just getting ground up by these moving violations. You know, it was like one after another, just all these people that had some something to do with their car. You know, it was, you know, weed or speeding or something. And it was like the car was this literal vehicle that like a state and local municipalities were using to just keep people in poverty, like period. And, um, I saw, I saw this like parade of people and I went through this and I was like, I'm fuck this. Like, and, and it was like that next week I like moved downtown, sold my car. I'm like, and I went until my mom died and I inherited the car I bought for her. I went four or five years in Detroit without a car because I was just so appalled at what, what an instrument cars were for keeping people impoverished. And like, especially through the criminal justice system, which it was like, it was, it was like maddening watching this like poor parade of people just walk through traffic court and it's something that we don't even think about i didn't even really think about it until i was kind of in the in the midst of it and i was like i'm done so we're talking about how government doesn't have very much money right and now i'm thinking about how a lot of the money they do make is from that car stuff oh yeah oh yeah that's kind of sad like our, our our government makes most of their money from cars like, that's also pretty sad. Like, yes, it keeps people in poverty. Maybe it even keeps our government in poverty because I don't think that's enough to really keep things thriving. I'm sure that for a lot of state and local governments, their, their traffic court system helps play, pay the bills. I, I haven't looked yeah. at the data, but yeah. I have no doubt that it's probably not something that we would be proud of. But, right. you know, yeah. everyone's, everyone's uh, a patriot in this country until it's time to pay their taxes, and then nobody wants to you know, be patriotic. Oh yeah, so. that's so true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking about like, as, as you're talking about how much money the courts are bleeding people from their vehicles, 
It's like, same thing for people who are buying cars that they can't afford. And like, cars are expensive. I don't know the last time you looked at like leases on cars of what people typically pay, but if you see somebody driving that new Suburban XL, how much, like, do you think that they actually spent 70 grand cash to drive that car? No, they're probably spending $1,000 a month driving that car around. They're crazy expensive. And so I th- I'm thinking about it even from that perspective as well, that's slowly bleeding people dry mm-hmm. because cars are very much a status thing. Yeah, you need a big car if you have a big family and it's nice to have nice things, of course. I want those things, but I know that those things aren't more important than other things that I need right now. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people just aren't educated on that. And I think it's cool that it's one thing that we get to do with making your video series is teaching people, hey, here's, here's really what's going on behind the scenes. And just so you know where all your money is going. Yeah. Like you have control over that. Here's the education, making it simple for you. Your choice, next. Yeah. I think four or more of the comments in the intro to Professor X were actually talking about how they had a similar experience as you at a car dealership. And so I was reading your comments and I'm like, man, like this is really dear to people. And there are even people who commented, I haven't gotten a car yet, but they look like they might be in their early 20s. And um, so that's really interesting too. And it's cool how you can shed a light on that for people, kind of save them before they get too deep into it. Yeah, no, it's it's really it's really frustrating for me because I um I just see how, you know, and I and I get it. I'm not made out of stone. I like nice stuff. I mean, I was, you know, obviously I was 23. The first thing I did is I ran out and bought a $40,000 Swedish, you know, sports car. So I'm not I'm not like Mr. Fire Spartan living, you know, sleep on your, you know, I mean, easy Dave Ramsey. For, right? <laughs> I mean, like easy for me to say as as a white male with a master's degree, but you know what like really goes a long way is like making a good living, you know, and, and a lot of people are just telling people like eat ramen noodles and like, but I, the fact that I've always been able to generate a lot of income helps help me cover up for a lot of mistakes or a lot of like casual consumeristic behavior. Right. But, um, and, and frankly living in a low cost city like Detroit, although Detroit's like not really a low cost city when you look at things like car insurance and taxes and, you know, and, a lot of other things. So, um, you know, I, I was in, um, I was in Mexico city the last six weeks and I was obviously, I was staying in a, you know, kind of gringo friendly, nicer area. And the, the walkability, like the berms, the plants, the intention, the intentional layout of streets so that any human being can just walk to, you know, uh, a daycare, a veterinary shop, a bar, a restaurant, a, you know, whatever it is, right? Like, I I never forget. I mean, the first time I went to that city, it was about a year and a half ago, and I was like, they're building the wall on the wrong side of the border because this city is, like, magical. Wow. And I don't, <laughs> you know, and, and so, but there there's, for the, in the, again, in the nicer areas of the city, and there's a lot of poverty there, but, you know, there's just this commitment to making a streetscape that's ultra walkable. And then do you know what? is on these streets that are super walkable there's every single type of small business imaginable and it was they were all open and they all had really robust covid protocols and they were all you know happy and open and thriving and diverse and i don't know it was just i i think america just really sucks at cities and the food looked because our friend is also there <laughs> and the, when he when he posts videos the food looks like accessible too like there's markets everywhere with all sorts of fruits 
and are, are those affordable? Oh my well? gosh. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I hate, like I, I'm reluctant for me to kind of, of course, everything's affordable for me, but, but I mean, you know, food is embarrassingly cheap, but I think, I think something else that happened when I'm talking about kind of me in my twenties was like, I got through, through like my own traveling and sense of wonder. And I got, I got, I, I got disabused of the notion of like American exceptionalism. Like it was very, you know, it was very quick in my life through, through books and travel that I stopped thinking that America was the best. Um, there's a, there's a, I'm not, you know, I, I'm, there's a lot of wonderful things about America. America, America is undergoing, America has to deal with diverse cultures in a way that most countries don't. Like we really, we, that's just period. That's, is, you know, dealing with tribalism is so hard, um, clearly. Uh, and we're struggling with under the weight of tribalism in a way that most countries don't have to deal with. Uh, so, and so America, America has a diversity that is enviable because if we harness the power of our diversity, we can do things that other countries can only dream of. Uh, but we have an agility uh, that, that other, and an, an economy that other countries are incredibly jealous of. And we're, for better or worse, we're isolated geographically. Like we're, we have two borders, you know, uh, we, uh, we, we have two oceans. China has 17 borders, you know, 17, yeah. right? Cool. So yeah. like we are totally isolated. Yeah. But when you start to travel and you start to see other cities and other economies and other cultures, for me, I was like very quickly realized that this is not, this is not, we're not any better or any worse than anyone else. That's part of the beautiful thing about traveling is you get to see how other people do it, how other cultures do it, how they live life. And like, I just think it's super cool that you can go somewhere like a new city in Mexico and learn so many things that are basic or fundamental to them. They've probably been doing them for a long time. And in America, if you introduce those ideas, they're new. It's foreign, right? It's different. And like, it's cool to be able to go experience that and then build it into our community of where we are and start small because that's how things start and change what we can and bring more people together, build a stronger community. And it's just cool to see how we can share culture to build our own communities. Mm -hmm. It is pretty cool. I, I kind of want to talk about too, what was your motivation for making money? when you were in your 20s. I want to know more about your mindset behind it and why you weren't just okay with making enough. Oh, that's so easy. I was um like I was just I was embarrassed from my dad. I was totally embarrassed that he was you know, he was a, a smart, charming guy that couldn't rub two nickels together. Uh and uh you know, that for me that was like by far my single biggest driving factor in my life. And um Was that my, enough to make you save though? Ah, uh, that's a good question. That's a good question. So um so I would say I would say that growing up in a you know, uh, kind of a modest household like the and I've I've heard other people kind of echo this sentiment that like six figures is like this magic number where your all of your problems go away. And so I eclipsed that and I was, I was probably living not like paycheck to pay. I was always, I was always doing a good job of saving for retirement, but I was definitely not a saver. Um, but so, so definitely this, this kind of, you know, there's this, there was the, 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 there's like the macro, 
which is like when you're a young guy, you're like, you have to have a big job and you have to be productive. And that's the only way you're going to meet potential mates. And, um, and so there was like that normal macro influence that I think most people have and, and, and the status and the keeping up with the Joneses. And then for me, the, the personal driver was like my, my kind of, you know, not seeing my dad as like a, of a kind of a good economic role model. But, uh, you know, once I kind of tipped over that, it was, you know, as, as strange as it sounds, it was really, it wasn't even so much, there was, there was a couple things that happened. Um, one was when, as strange as it sounds, when I, when I really, when, when I really started to grow my wealth, in a crazy fashion was when I moved into a one bedroom, 700 square foot place and got rid of my car and my motorcycle. And I just, I just made my operating expenses really tiny. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I couldn't help but save money cause I was just living such a small footprint. Mm-hmm. And that was for, you know, that my, my kind of rage over how bullshit I thought cars were and their culpability and, making the world bad and, and my own kind of desire to lead a more environmentally sustainable life. I mean, you guys, I mean, obviously my place is nice, but it's little, it's pretty itty bitty, mm-hmm. but that was, that was like the big driver where I just didn't even have to worry about saving anymore. Yeah. Um, and was that inspired by traveling too, wanting to live a more minimalistic life? Yeah, I think so. Because, um, you know, I, I there's, there's, there's these, these things become anchor things are nice things. I have a nice home. I have a nice car. Let's like, not like, but I'm not, again, I'm not here to save any, like I'm not, you know, some Buddha of savings, but Matt's got a really nice clock <laughs> in his kitchen. Okay. Got a, got a nice <laughs> I've seen yeah. this clock. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, the clock was $85. <laughs> it's the $40 watch. But, um, but you know, like I, I'll tell you, and I, I'll tell you, you know, you know what, like, you know what, like, you, if you all of a sudden, I don't remember when I started doing this or why I started doing this, but I started kind of to view decision making through opportunity costs, and and what I mean by that is like, so this this Casio watch, like this Casio watch is very cool. I love it. It was like forty or fifty bucks, right? Every every like couple months, I will go on like I will go on eBay and I will look for an Omega watch, and it'll be five thousand dollars. And I could buy that watch many, many, many times. And every single time I look at that Omega watch for $5,000, I ask myself one question. I say, would you rather have $5,000 or would you rather have the watch? And the answer is always $5,000. Totally. Always. (laughs) You know, and so like that, and that's how I wish people, when people were at the dealership and, you know, they're they're looking at the Ford F-150 that's souped out for $55,000, I wish that they would stop looking at it as $650 a month. And I, and they wish they would imagine that genie and the genie's like, I have, I have, I have, I will grant you can, you can choose, you can choose one of these two things. I will give you a free and clear title for that truck, or I'll give you 60,000. I'll give you a pile of $60,000, you know, because most people, when presented with that option, they would choose that pile of money in a heartbeat. Oh. They just don't realize that that's what they're giving up mm-hmm. by buying the truck for 600 bucks a month, 
you know, over time. Yeah. Didn't you ask your friend that when she was thinking about getting a condo? I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did. And she immediately was like, okay, I'd rather save my money. You know, it's like, it's, it's like you've got to, you've got to hack your brain or you've got to create systems for yourself that like allow you, like for me, there was like, there's like a de minimis spend where I like stop caring. Like, like I buy these shoes the other day, the shoes were 150 bucks. Like I've, I've, I've built a life for myself where I like, I don't have to think about the $150 pair of shoes. Like I can just buy it and, and I can live my life and it's not a big deal, you know? And, and so like, I kind of, I, I made it like a Faustian bargain with myself at some level where it's like, okay, below this threshold, you can go crazy, you know, <laughs> but anything above, you have to start to kind of really think about it in a way that like, um, you know, makes you not make stupid decisions. Yeah. So. But are you saving just to save? Like, is it like, oh, I, I just want $5,000 or do you have a purpose behind your money? I get to do fun stuff like this. Yeah. You know, like I, 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 <laughs> I mean it, you know, like, you, you know, this is, this is, this is what I like. I, I, this is the fun stuff I get to do, you know, like this is, this is it. So, you know, or, or, or staying in Mexico. Like, I mean, it's, it's definitely, you know, in, in that kind of how I make decisions you know, if it's educational, if it's, if it's for my physical health, if it's for my own enrichment or learning, like those things get to kind of, they, there's like a budget, a mental budget where it's like, I'm like less focused. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to think that hard about, you yeah. know, I'm not going to get too much too involved in the price tag, you know, cause it's fun or mm -hmm. it's, I'm learning something or so on the know. pursuit of learning and educating. Yeah. Bingo. You know. I kind of call that yeah. a, in my line item for budgeting experience life is <laughs> like, Hey, like there should be amount of money that you shouldn't have to think about that you can spend every month. You give yourself permission to spend it on whatever it is that I want to experience life on a deeper level. I want to go rock climbing. I want to go jump out of an airplane. I want to go do something. I think it's important to give yourself permission to have that threshold. So I like that. hundred yeah. percent, you know, hundred percent. So what's that tattoo on your wrist? I, I also was about to ask. I was like, the watch was gone. I saw it. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, a, a memento mori. It's uh, old. Um, it's Latin. It means remember death. It, it's just a little reminder to, you know, make decisions that... Yeah you know that you'll be dead soon so i love well. death yeah. i always say that I you want to know something <laughs> funny we just finished up a, a team meeting and on my new chrome tab is i have three countdowns and for a long time one of them said like number of days until death and it was like all right well if i die when i'm about 80 like i've got to like i don't have that much time so like remember that like i'm alive i'm only here for so long i'm only how i am for so long so don't wait too long to do the stuff that you want to do. You've got time. You can mess up a bunch on the way there, but you will die eventually. Mm -hmm. So what, do you want the $5,000 watch or do you want to go like, experience life? You know? yeah. It's different. And, and for some people, the answer is the $5,000 watch. Totally. And that's like, okay. That's okay. Like, yeah. but, but you got to, as long as you're, you know, making, as long as you're making that decision with your eyes and eyes wide open, like it's, it's totally okay. You ever right? watch Shit's Creek? I, I, I watched a few episodes, but I didn't really, I didn't really, it didn't, didn't vibe right after that. But, uh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but you know the principle behind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they, they got kind of downsized to a rural area. Yeah, they're, they like, they're a really, really rich family that went bankrupt. And now they're stuck living in a town that they didn't know they owned. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's good to kind of see those, um, 
where 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 because because you know it, money again it gets back to that like kind of 20 20 year old mentality i had where i thought i just thought rich people were better and uh and i and i think we're still like we're we're always you know even with you know, trump and schitt's creek and you know everything else we're all we're always that, that's maybe that's like the unspoken other side of the equation that we need to kind of grapple with is like there's a lot of people out there that think that on both sides, you know, and that 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 needs to be eradicated. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, f- for me, I look at um, a lot of these ultra wealthy people who are mostly mostly guys and and they and I, I say to them, like, if I were in their shoes, I'd say, well, you can be worth, you know, they, they make a decision. They say, well, I could be worth $18 billion and not own the LA Clippers, or I could be worth 16 billion and own the LA Clippers. And so they go buy the LA Clippers. And I see it more as like, they, they go to bed every night and there's people that in their city that are starving to death. And I'm like, how can you, how do you like live with yourself? Like, honestly, like that's, I don't get it, you know, uh, because they're, I don't know. I just don't understand like the mental the mental gymnastics that you have to do to not want to pay taxes when you have that much money. That but. was kind of the point behind my question of like, you know, when you save that $5,000, truly why? Because you, do you think most people are thinking, because I want to educate people and get videos and help? <laughs> like, No, but like to you, that's something that feels powerful. And like, do you think that's more of a calling? I think... I think that um, fear is the single biggest driver of human behavior, and f- greed is just like a, a flavor of fear. And I just, you know, I, I'll never forget. I was uh, having lunch with a guy I know, and he, his wife is a fertility consultant. She probably makes seven hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. He made one hundred and fifty grand, and they live in Gross Point. And he, he looked at me and he said this, he wasn't, I, he said this in a way that, you know, he's like, he's like, there's no way he's like, I know this sounds crazy, but we feel poor where we live. And I was like, there's no hope. <laughs> there's how can yeah. I, how can you like, cause their household income was n- almost a million dollars a year and they feel poor living in where they do in gross point, which mm-hmm. I like, there's nothing. You, you hear things like that as somebody who's striving for, social justice, economic equality, and you feel helpless. I'm like, what can I possibly do to help Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so like overcome, like the, the, the average, they make 20 times the average household income of the average American and they feel poor. Like there's nothing that I can say or do to help them overcome that, that the, 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 the tyranny of their, of their peer group really. It's a rough place to be. I mean, it's a good reminder that it doesn't matter how much money you have. You still got the same problems and like, doesn't matter. Like, and it comes back to who your friends are and who your family are and like, which turn, which friends you turn into family because you're always there for each other. Right. And yeah, that's tough that there's so many cultures that are kind of like invisible to a lot of people. It's like, all right, well, if you're struggling for food, it's hard to imagine that somebody making almost a million dollars a year is struggling to fit in with their friends. And that's their biggest problem in life right now. I remember uh, in my, my kind of dusty annals of money quotes, uh, being, uh, feeling rich is making 10% more than your brother-in-law. 
Yeah, but that's that's the that's the benchmark. Right? That's the benchmark. <laughs> that's the benchmark. Whatever it is, that's that's all you need to clear. You know, yeah. it's uh, but it's so true because you know you when whenever like uh, when a lot of times when people ask me questions about money, it's usually that's usually how it's cast is like. Am I doing good for like a 25 year old? Am I doing good for like a 45 year old? I'm like, no, 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 that's, you're asking the wrong question. It's not, yeah. not like, you shouldn't compare yourself with a group. It's like, what do you want? What are your goals? You know? Yeah. So, One of my but, friends will ask me that cause we're both 23 and like, he loves to ask me that. Like, don't you feel like you're doing better than other people our age? Don't you feel this way that way? I'm like, hell no, I'm not even close to where I want to be. And that's not just financially, that's mentally. I'd never look at other people our age and think I'm better than them. I'd look at them and I'd think, I hope they learn some of the things I'm learning, but maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe I should be having fun and relaxing and, you know, being more carefree. There's no right. Like, (laughs) it's just my journey and everyone else has their journey. But like, I'm in debt. Like, I'd never feel like I'm financially secure because I just graduated college. Like, I don't know anyone else's financial situation after leaving college or after not going to college. So how could I say that I feel better or worse than anyone my age? Like, 23 is the weirdest age financially. And so that's why when you said your your main focus for Professor X is, you know, people in their 20s, I, I think that's the best, you know, group to educate because, like, we don't talk about money. And when we do, it's on a comparison level. And we're blindly comparing. I mean, to what? Like, to all of our first out-of-debt, you know, starter job incomes, like, even if I had a high income, that would change nothing about my debt situation unless if I was taking dramatic action on it right away, which wouldn't make much sense if I had a huge rent and, and other bills to pay. Well, and you guys got totally screwed, I mean, by the, the, <clears throat> the student loan burden that's been cast upon your generation is just totally unconscionable. And you the know, pandemic made everything weirder. And the pandemic. But it's it's, you know, college is just... Everyone knows college has gone up 3x, but people don't really think talk about why. And a lot of it is because, like, my generation and the generation before me don't want to pay taxes to pay for schools. So that now it's the the the, the cost has just totally exploded. And uh, and on top of that, um, everyone is talking about forgiving. You know, Biden and Warren are negotiating on like forgiving a certain level of student loan debt, but. Very few people are talking about allowing student loans to be uh, discharged in bankruptcy, right? Which would really be, you know, that's really the right answer. And the reason that's the right answer is because <clears throat> it would, you know, no one likes to go through bankruptcy. There's, 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 a, there's a cost to it. But for whatever reason, and I could tell you, but it's, it has to do with lobbying and the way that people influence politicians. You know, you're not, a, you, if I have $20,000 in credit card to get debt, I can go to a bankruptcy court and I can have it expunged. If I have $20,000 in student loan debt, I cannot, I cannot do that. And so and you have 18-year-olds signing promissory notes for $10,000, dollars $60,000, $60, and they have no, they don't even know what they want to do with their lives. They, they don't, they're, they're, they're barely legal in the, in, the, in the capacity to enter into contract sense. And, uh, and we're asking them to make these huge, huge, uh, promises to, to pay back money with, with no, no avenue for them to pursue to, to, um, 
you know, to get rid of it if they don't want to. Yeah, I don't know if it was, I think it was Bill's dad or my dad, but one of them said if you went to a bank and you said, I'm trying to take out this much money, here's my current financial situation, I want this business loan to start my business, the bank would be like, absolutely not. <laughs> There'd be so much financial guidance, but there's very little criteria for taking out student loans, and you're stuck with them pretty much the rest of your life. Um, is there any politicians that you know of thinking about that right now for bankruptcy? Uh, not, no, none of them, because that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense logically. And, uh, <laughs> oh, that oh. answer hurt. <laughs> oh. That answer hurt. <laughs> it just makes too much sense. Uh, no, I mean, you have, you know, you have your extreme talking points on both sides and, you know, there really isn't anyone looking at it rationally or logically. Cause that would be, you know, cause the, the bankruptcy answer, like you would, there was a couple things that would happen if that changed. Number one, private lenders would really, if they didn't think they were going to get paid back, um, they would probably not lend money to as many people in the first place, which is your point about the business loan, right? But then <clears throat> on top of that, people, the only people that would go and get rid of, you know, their their student loans would be the people that really needed it because they would have to do they would have to do the analysis and they'd have to say okay if i'm going to go into bankruptcy i'm not going to be able to get a mortgage for seven years or i'm not going to be able to get a credit card for five years or you know i i am making a very tough choice right and so the the pain that forty fifty thousand dollars in debt that pain is worth the the pain of my constricted consumer choice for the next five or seven years while i go through bankruptcy and so I really, I really have to, I really have to need this as a solution. Right. Yeah. And so, um, I think that that bankruptcy alternative just is way too much of a logical middle ground in today's hyper-partisan political world for it to probably, and it's just, and it's, it's something that also the problem with that solution is it's a little bit, you know, we've been talking about it for five minutes and I've had a chance to unpack it a little bit. It doesn't fit into a soundbite, you know, so it's, it's a little bit hard. It's not, you know, kind of. CNN worthy or you know it's not buzzy so. yeah but it's necessary to talk about and it's necessary to do something about we don't talk about it yeah we all just oh you have debt I have debt okay you yeah know. <laughs> college we're all we're all screwed <laughs> we're all we're all young in yeah. 2020 we all got screwed by expensive cost of college and mm-hmm. how many people does that degree their degree that they're now in debt for trap them in jobs that they don't enjoy just so they can pay them off that's the biggest bummer of it all is, you know, you, you, you can't pivot, you know, if you want to start a business or, you know, start a nonprofit or run for office or whatever, just, you know, whatever it is that, you know, where life takes you. If you're, you know, 60 K in the hole, I mean, you basically have a small mortgage payment with nothing to show for it. You, you can't really, you know, it's, it's hard to dig out of that hole. And, um, it, it, my, my heart really, you know, goes out to young people. I feel like I kind of, got got in the the door just as the it was the window was got in the window just as it was closing because my tuition was so cheap in the early 2000s and uh, at the expensive Madison University <laughs> yeah I was 2400 bucks a semester you know for my bachelor's it was nothing you yeah. know like it's nothing back then oh. you know uh, it's uh that was yeah now it's now it's just ridiculous so i i feel i and it's it's a huge problem because it's going to make it really hard for all of you to 
you know, build equity, build wealth, um, you know, have kids, do all the normal things that you want to do to help move an economy forward. So, yeah, we we do a lot with Ross Mortgage, and the loan officers come in here, and they do a lot of talking about that how millennials are like in so much more debt than they even realize, and a lot of it's because of how long we rent and how we lease cars and we just we do all these financial things because we that's what everyone else is doing so we just don't question them it's kind of like our routine of life is signing on to contracts and making payments that's really really sad and pathetic but it's probably pretty accurate you know it's I don't know. I, and it's like my, my kind of story of the minimal lifestyle. I mean, like I didn't have kids or a wife or, or spouse, you know, so it was pretty easy and I was making a good living at the time. So it was, and I went to college at a time when it was a lot more affordable. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of variables that happen to just been my own fate and good fortune Mm -hmm. that are not quite as um, accessible to certain people. So, you know, it's, that's another thing with, with, with with knowledge, uh, it's it's I I kind of you hear people like you know Dave Ramsey or who's the Jim Cramer, and and they just kind of it's their job to yell and be controversial you know but when life is like a very nuanced you know life is a very nuanced conversation and um, so that was probably one of my biggest um, hangups about doing something like this is because I I know I wasn't. Um, you know, a, a loud person in that sense. Like I can, I can definitely be loud. There's a lot of people out there that know I can be loud when I want to be, but, um, you know, I, I just think that there's nuance, you know, there's a nuance to talking about things that is hard to, it's, it's hard to kind of convey in a way that, um, our media today kind of demands, you know, cause it's with, with Facebook and cable news, it, it just is, it feels like a marketplace of ideas that is very shrill and pithy and divisive. And most things in life aren't that. And most people mm-hmm. in life aren't that. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. I tell you, I think the best thing that you can do for Professor X is just be yourself. You don't need to be like any of the other finance people. You don't need to tell the hot trending topics. I think that you get asked questions every day by people in the university, the, you know, people around you in Detroit about finance and, you know, making the right business and financial decisions. And so you already know, like, the topics that pull at you the most. And that's going to help people more than, like, today's hottest trends. (laughs) We need to have the conversations that people aren't having, not the ones that everyone else is already kind of, I don't know, hot topic about. (laughs) No, I, I think you're right. And I, and I, and I hope we can kind of, and I think we'll get there, you know, it's, um, cause, uh, I, I just, um, you know, even, I think we're all kind of like chasing the shadows of those like voices in our head that tell us we're like not good looking enough or we're not rich enough or we don't make enough money or we're not like, you know, cool enough or funny enough or whatever. And, you know, ultimately like money gets so wrapped up into all those and so it's it's hard it's hard to kind of separate them and and i really i think for me it's all most of my most of the efforts i've made are about like installing systems that like try to soften the blow of that voice you know because it's like 
those voices are like always with us. We just yeah. have to like find ways of quieting them. Yeah, we understand that exists and it's normal for that to exist. <laughs> Basically everybody else that exists for them. Right. And that's okay. Learn to be with it. Learn well, to be friends with it. <laughs> learn to be maybe you're like dark passenger to use the yeah. the Dexter the Dexter Dexter quote from the TV show. That's but, a good um, show. It was yeah. a good show. Definitely a good show. I think they're doing a reboot now. So Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully it'll be He comes back from the from the ship. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was a logger in. Uh, I, yeah, he. Yeah, yeah. A- after that, they did tease it. That you're right. Yeah, yeah. Guess yeah. we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> this question doesn't need to be on the video podcast, but I'm wondering. <laughs> you mentioned how you're not married or with kids. Is there a reason behind that? Oh boy. I know. Uh, I hate to ask. It's like you know that common question you probably get asked all the time. Uh, no, no, no. It's a, it's a good question. Like I, I um. I don't know. I, I never really, there's probably, there've been a couple of women I've met in my life where I, there's, there've been where I probably should have, where I felt, I, I think I would have married them. And one time I wasn't ready. One time she wasn't ready. And then one time I was just way too young. So, um, I don't know. I think, um, I don't know. It's, it's never really, it's never really been like my number one priority. And then all of a sudden you turn around and you're old and you're like, Oh shit. (laughs) I should not not like, now there's like spots on the banana and, and I have to go to the marketplace and try to find a banana with spots on it I guess yeah and I don't think yeah. 40 is old but I definitely I thought you were 30 I thought you were 30 when we met yeah. so then when you said you were 40 I yeah. was just like because you kept making jokes about being 40 and I'm like is he even 40 or is he just like saying that <laughs> I remember um I had what a very close friend of mine in high school his his dad um was like kind of like a god to me and he he was a very affluent dad, but he made his kids drive like the worst cars in the world. You can start to see, you know, the dots connecting. And um, I remember his name was Phil. And I remember we were at breakfast one time and he said, he looked at us and he goes, the single most important thing you can do in your life is take care of your body. And he said it like, and we're like, I don't know, 14 or 15, like, but it like, it was somebody it was like somebody just stamped it on the back of my skull. And, and so, and I've like never, I'm not, you know, again, I'm not like running triathlons or Ironmans here, but, um, you know, like your, and Steve Jobs says something to this to in his like famous Stanford graduation speech. And he died like four years later. He's like, they're the most expensive bed in the world is a hospital bed because you can't, you can't trade, you, you know, no one, there's no amount of money you can pay to trade for the hospital bed. Yeah. You know, that's and, a whole new episode. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think especially that was the, for me with COVID, I would say I was kind of like a bee taking care of myself. Cause I would, anytime I'd run into a guy like Bill pre COVID and be like, let's go grab a drink, let's go grab a beer, you know? And, and so I was probably eating and drinking more. That's probably been the biggest bane for me, for my health, health wise. But, um, you know, I, I think that you're, People, people treat their bodies like it's like a tomorrow thing. Like, well, if I, I can ride my, I'm 23, I can ride my body hard and I don't have to deal with it until I'm 40 or 50 or 60. But, but that's, that's, that couldn't be further from the truth because if you're not sleeping right, if you're 
if you're if your if your heart and your brain aren't in sync if you're not hydrated enough if you're smoking if you're drinking or whatever like it becomes like a today problem really fast you know and and so um and people can just tell you know you can just tell when somebody's riding their body too hard yeah see it in the eyes your hair it shows as you're saying that i'm like it's the same thing for financial health as well right like you have to take care of it you have to it's your financial health is not a tomorrow thing it's a now thing it's this decision are you gonna spend this money now thing um are you gonna save now are you gonna invest now what are you gonna do now uh it's it's and it's and i think it's like the the uh the part of your brains that makes those decisions is it's like um, there was a guy in Chicago, at the University of Chicago um, who, who won, uh, I think he won a Nobel Prize for this. He, he talked about system one versus system two thinking. And it's, it's kind of like you're, you're, oh my gosh, there's, there's a bus coming, I need to jump out of the way versus like what's 57 divided by four. And uh, the different software in our brains that's like constantly running. And the, the problem that most of us have is that we will make health or finance decisions with the old part or with like our reptilian brain and we won't like for instance um one of the examples i've read in a book was like if a young man is like shopping for a house and you know he he sees like an attractive woman next door and so he like buys the house (laughs) you know it's like it's like okay that was probably not the right like that was probably you probably used the wrong software to make that decision you know what i mean (laughs) So, so, you know, it, you, we, we're, we're all kind of guilty of, um, making, you know, using our reptilian mind to make like health or, or like, I remember I used to get up early and I'd go to the YMCA and I'd work out and then I'd walk past Ash Coffee and I'd be like, well, I'm going to go buy a, I was such a good guy. I got up early and I went to the Y, so I'm going to go have a 800 calorie $5 coffee, right? Like that's, that's like not nothing about that is a good decision, you know? And, and, and so, you know, and again, it gets back to that whole concept of like installing systems in our lives for, for me, that's the way I view it is like, I need to install systems that like get me on the good path that automate, 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 automate. Because I, when I like, when I'm allowed to make the decisions myself, I like clearly don't make good decisions. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I like that. And it's, I'm like thinking it's kind of like bumpers when you're bowling. It's like, okay, well, these are your guidelines. I think of like decision-making frameworks. It's like, Hey Matt, you've done this before. Ask yourself these questions. If you pass the test, you can do the thing. If not, don't do it. Cause you know, you shouldn't do it. Exactly. Exactly. Like bumpers, bumpers, automation, like, you know, um, one of my favorite 2020 quotes was, um, this from a book called atomic habits. And it was, we don't, we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. And, and I think that's so true because we all want to be, we all want to win the race. We all want to get the job. We all want to, you know, be happy or we all want to be rich, whatever, whatever, however we define that. So like the goals aren't unique right? The goal, no one has, very few of us have unique or novel goals. It's pretty rare. I meet someone and they tell me they want to do something with their life that I've haven't heard before. Right. Yeah. But the systems are what separate us. It's those habits. However, you know, if it's an app, if it's a piece of paper, if it's like an alarm, whatever, whatever, however you have to systematize your life to get where you want to go and realizing that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a marathon, 
right? Like building a business yeah. is a marathon, you know, yep. becoming a famous film producer is a marathon or becoming independently wealthy is a marathon. Like it's, 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 you eat that, you eat that elephant one bite, one bite a day. Yeah. So something I, I've had to get better at is developing that patience to understand, all right, well, you like sprinting, but you can't sprint for that long. Mm-hmm. It's not realistic. Mm-hmm. Like you'd like to think that you could, but you can't. So, cause you tried a bunch of times and you just keep sprinting into a wall. So understanding, okay, well, I'm going to run the marathon. Yes. I have to go slower, but this increases the chances of me getting to where I want to go on time and on track. Yeah. I actually, we watched one of his video podcasts with, who is he with being interviewed by the author of that book, Atomic Habits. James Clear. Is that who was interviewing him? That's who wrote. Uh, Atomic Habits, and then Rich Roll was interviewing James. Yeah, and that interview kind of sparked a lot in my mind. And so the other day, I was actually writing down my 2021 habits instead of 2021 goals. (laughs) And I have a personal and professional and mindset. Because to me, if, if they're goals, like every year I've done goals, and I don't care after February. I'm like okay, you know, this has been nice, but I want to call them habits because, like, I don't want this to stop after 2021. I don't want this to be like, okay, I hit it, I'm good. Nope, I want it to be lifestyle changes. And I know that also means I can only put a couple, but they need to be extremely detailed or a few that are just really detailed, like with realistic uh, milestones that are achievable. It's good. Like, you got to, I mean, goals are goals, it's if if you if you don't have good goals that inspire you it's you know whenever whenever you're in like a rut your your goals are the inspiration that like keep those because habits suck like yeah like no <laughs> like habit habit is like one of the most uninspiring words in the english language right like yeah. habit it doesn't matter if it's good or bad it just sounds like something i don't want anything to do because with, we right? we all talk about bad habits We'll talk about the good ones. We'll talk about the good ones. But, yeah. But at the the goals that you wrote down there, like there's going to be a day when you don't really feel like whatever, you know, flossing your flossing or eating broccoli or whatever it is that you're, you know, you're trying to aspire to or, or reading extra, extra. 15 minutes of YouTube a day for learning. There you go. Right. And so, you know, you're going to remember, you're going to inspire yourself and ground that, that, that habit in that, in that goal. You know, and so like I'm, you know, that that's how it's that reminder, that aspiration of why we why we have the boring ass habit to, that we want to do every day in the first place. So yep. yeah, and like with that one, it's it's not just YouTube. It's literally like I just did get out of school, and I need to feel educated. There's so many incredible TED talks and educated people out there who put things on YouTube for free, and like I just don't want to read all the time. But that's why you pay for college. You get a professor. And I don't necessarily want to pay for college anymore. <laughs> so YouTube. <laughs> I get to watch someone talk. No, and it's still get educated. It's like it's the golden age of information. Like it's it's I'm I remember when I was in my twenties there was this website called How Stuff Works. I don't know if it's still a thing, but it is, like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you told me about I was, that though. I was I was I was like on there all the time because I was always kinda trying to figure I I hated not knowing things. I've always seen information as like the biggest luxury good that somebody can possess. Like you you know a second language, you know about wine or cuisine, like you know 
I think it, I've always kind of seen it as like a barrier, a status symbol. And so I've always tried to, tried to know how things work. So. And it's just cool how things work when you understand how thing over here works like this and totally unrelated thing over here works like that. And then you can understand, oh, I can make this happen because you know how these two diverse things work and you can figure out how to bring them together. Yeah. And it's not just like, oh, I know how to talk wine. You know, talking about wine is one thing, but when you actually start learning about like why wine tastes the way it tastes, you can actually appreciate it so much more when you drink it. And like wine goes from being an alcoholic beverage to being something that's like truly kind of luxury per taste. You don't even want a whole glass. You're like, I'm good with a sample. (laughs) Yeah, no, for for sure. And you start to see, you know, to, to Bill's point about how the system's the similarities in the systems, right? And you go to Central Europe and you get, you know, um, sauerkraut and pierogies and you go to Asia and you get dumplings and kimchi and it's the same. It's just two different takes on like, okay, well, here's our fermented cabbage and here's here's our meat inside of uh, dough, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so you start to kind of see these like wonderful rhymes and rhythms for, for life on planet Earth that we've all adopted. Yeah. You know? So. so special. Yeah. You yeah. look, you're cheesing. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> pretty cool. Being able to travel is cool. Yeah. Inspires yeah. the mind and get to meet new people and see new things and just see how the world works in a different way. And for me, it's easy to forget when I'm not around people that like there's a whole world out there working and stuff's happening. And it's easy when we're sitting here with just a few of us to forget about the world and all of the other people out there. Yeah. If you could mention, now this will be like one of our finishing points, but five ways that you educate people, not five topics, but five ways that you educate people through Professor X, what do you think those would be? Oh, you mean not the topics, but the how? Like, yeah, like I'd say if I was going to throw something out there, you have more of a sustainability passion. Ah. And sustainability can cost more and also save more. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, kind of like why, kind of the, not not the why, but the, um, like the the competitive advantage, like what, what would make this different maybe? Yeah, like what what are some things that makes your millionaire mindset unique? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I could name a lot, but I want yeah. you to think of the ones you're most passionate about. Um, I think it's hopefully a more holi- like money's, um, a tool. And, and I know this is maybe sounds trite, but like, I really see it as, you know, having a holistic approach to money, you know, so it's not just money for money's sake. Um, you know, the, 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 the question and answer earlier about like the $5,000 for the watch versus like making these videos is I think kind of, you know, the big point in a way. Right. And, um, so a holistic approach, um, sustainability approach, I think, um, you know, people think that sustainability does have to be more expensive or, or more time consuming when, if you really, you take it, I remember one time I was talking to a coworker when I was at the consulting firm and he, he, he was like, oh, you know, he's asking me a question about like which bottle to recycle and how he can lead a more sustainable life. And I was like, don't build a new home and don't buy a new car. <laughs> like, I was like, do you, like, if you really want to talk about like, you know, and I think he did 
build a McMansion in the middle of nowhere, which is like this probably the single worst thing you can do. But um, so so you know sustainability doesn't usually ends up saving you money. You know mm-hmm. if you're living a smaller footprint life. Um, I think understanding how money influences our world is a is a thread that I want to pull on. You know because you start to see. You know, and it's sometimes it can be a little. Sometimes it can be pretty cynical and pretty gross when you really start to like look under the, you know, the hood because most times money is driving decisions, and you can almost watch decisions get made through the lens of money. And you know, it's just you just know you kind of know who's going to win or lose based on who's got the bigger purse um, most of the time. Yeah. Sometimes the Wright brothers win, or sometimes, you know, David beats Goliath, but it's rare. Sometimes the New York Yankees lose. Um, so I think helping people see the, how the impact of money is it kind of sloshes around the world and makes decisions for us is important. Um, I wrote down integrated systems. I don't know if that applies oh. to how money is a tool, but yeah. I feel like they're a little different. Because yeah. you probably have habits that you don't even realize are integrated systems. Yeah. Are there are there automated things that I automated to avoid bad things in the first place from happening? Like, you know, the turning on your 401k or turning on your bill pay or, you know, there's so many cool things to help. Like I really, the, the behavioral, the behavioral psychology of money and making sure that people are building systems, um, I was, um, I, for one of the scripts I was writing, I was talking, I was, I'm going to, uh, on Wednesday, um, I'm going to talk about how somebody could start a, uh, download an app and start saving for an emergency fund, but then they could take the email and the, the, they could take the login info and give it to someone they trust a lot, trust a lot, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they could tell them to change it and tell them that here, here's, here's the criteria of things that I, I could come to you with that would, that would require you to give me the password. And if, and only if one of these criteria are met, then you can give me the password. Otherwise, you know, you can't. So, you know, there's, there's always really cool ways you can hack a system to make it really benefit you. Right. Cause not only that, but like, imagine like, let's say like, like Bill and I were married or something. Right. And, and so I'm like, okay, like, I know he has a vested interest in me having a emergency fund, right? And so if I give him the kind of, if I give him the keys to the, to the, to the safe, so to speak, then like, I don't have to worry, you know, I guess if he, if he steals from me, then I have bigger, there are bigger problems. (laughs) But, uh, but, but, but if, but if you have that trusted confident, like confidant, uh, then, you know, I can come to him and I'm like, okay, here's the five criteria. And maybe it's embarrassing, right? Maybe they're like, so then maybe I'm naturally anytime embarrassment is like the single biggest driver of human behavior. So yeah, anytime I, you can use embarrassment to hack, hack your brain, like you can, or fear or avoidance, gambling, drugs, alcohol. Th- these are actually normal things Bingo. that put us into debt that we deal with in marriages and in normal life. Like you, honestly, it's terrifying if, if you don't have someone there for you, like a best friend or, you know, trusted partner to help you to say, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. I've, and I've known 
plenty of people who have succumbed to you know gambling or and you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of bad there's a lot of there's a lot of bad stuff out there trying to take your money yeah so but uh but yeah the behavior the systems and the behavioral behavioral psychology you know and uh and you know and again just like money doesn't make you happy it's Mm -hmm. just a tool yeah so Yep. Money doesn't make you happy, but debt makes you sad. That makes you I sad. That's really yeah, that's your thing. <laughs> that makes so you sad. That's so true. <laughs> so. And you, it's cool, too. That I didn't know you had a background with small business. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, from, from my mom to boost up, and I've definitely done my entrepreneurial. I paid my entrepreneurial sacrifices. Yeah. So my mom, yeah, she had a daycare and that was how she paid the bills so we um i remember stuffing envelopes and you know helping her with the books and all sorts of fun stuff yeah and then with consulting was that all big business though oh yeah yeah oh yeah that was like fancy it was like fancy consulting okay like dow like it was like it was like (laughs) the dows and the general motors but uh I remember my one of my coolest projects was i actually worked at scad the savannah college of art and design for three months and um that was really interesting. Yeah. Because I don't know, I learned a lot about universities and how fucked up they are. Yeah. But uh But yeah. now you're working for one. They are pretty fucked up. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. what you're doing is I feel like you're also helping professors build up their own personal brand in a way too. Like how do you how do you word what you're doing with them? Well, you know, they're for them it's um it's about um they they have they have skin in the game because our the way that our intellectual property um, rules are written is that they get royalty revenue if their if their idea ever sees the light of day so they have a huge incentive to you know if they come up with a new you know compound for cell phone paint you know they 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 could make a million dollars so um, it's the university too you know because yeah. it's our intellectual property but. Uh, it's it's really kind of skewed more towards the faculty that do stuff in you know like college of engineering or school of medicine or chemistry or stuff like that so it's not which is it's great but it's kind of more like that hard technology versus you know like um they get to keep if they write a book they get to keep all the copyrights right away or do a video like this so they don't you know they can go just make all that money they so i don't get a lot of the soft science or like the psychology professors i don't they don't they don't they don't they don't care about me they, they don't they're not interested no yeah, okay. yeah. they know people i don't that sounds weird i was gonna say they know people yeah, they, so they don't have to rely on yeah. you they just they just go write, they just go write their book or they go do their speech or they do go publish their yeah. research and that's that yeah yeah oh well cool yeah good stuff matt yeah. i'm oh, so yeah. excited for you thanks yeah. for being here Matt, thank you so much for joining us on Making Mammoth, the first episode where we get to learn all about you and why we're such good friends now. Yeah. <laughs> it's been my pleasure. You guys are so much fun to work with, and it's absolutely my pleasure. Sweet. If people want to learn more about everything that you're doing, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, I think I should be asking you, you that question. I, I had to ask it. I was like, you could find Matt at the compassionateaccountant.com or search for per- personal finance with Professor X on YouTube and hit the subscribe button there. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the subscribe button. Matt's also pretty big on LinkedIn. I also have a large community of followers on LinkedIn. Yeah. I don't know many people big on LinkedIn, but Matt is. Heck yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. I love it. Thanks, guys.